0: I've always thought of cartoons as an art form because I, I just feel if cartoons are not just a joke, they can be an artistic worldview. Like some of the best cartoonists in the New Yorker, they're not just creating jokes, they're creating their view of the world. And that's what fine artists do. They give you their impression of what either what's going on internally or what they're seeing and how they're responding to what they're seeing.
1: That was Liza Donnelly best known as a cartoonist for The New Yorker, and our guest today on Irish Stew.
2: This episode of Irish Stew is brought to you by Murph Guide, the New York City nightlife website. Connecting the fun to the fun people. Visit murphguide.com. Hi, this is Martin Nutty, and welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. I'm going to bring in my co-host, John Lee. Welcome, John. Uh, Who do we have on today? Hey,
1: Martin, we're going to take the global Irish conversation in a way, in an area we've touched on in the past. Uh, We're speaking to a journalist, and that idea of bearing witness is going to come up again. Uh, The... That we had touched on with another journalist uh, previously. Uh, However, this is a journalist who works in fine lines of ink and pencil, who uses watercolor tints and increasingly uses the iPad in real-time drawings of events occurring around her as they are happening. Her mission from some of the things I've looked back uh, on is to change the world one laugh at a time. She's a cartoonist, a writer, a speaker, a TED Talker. She's a feminist and a New Yorker in more ways than one. Welcome, Liza Donnelly. Oh, thank you. What a nice introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you on, and, and uh, Liza and I have, have met in the past through the Irish Business Organization in New York mm-hmm. in passing, but uh, great to have you join us here on uh, Irish Stew. W- we can get into your career in so many different ways. You have such a trail on the Internet. Uh, we yeah. had so much work to do to to, uh, yeah. to, to, to research you. Oh. But uh, I'm, I'm going to start off with a, a, a question, mm-hmm. uh, why, in the at some point in the year 1979, might someone have seen you on the streets of New York sketching parking meters?
0: <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, 1979, I, I'd just gotten to New York. I'd been there a couple of years, and I was submitting cartoons to The New Yorker. I had wanted to be a New Yorker cartoonist since very early. And um, that year, I forget the exact date. You'd think I would remember, but it was seventy nine. I sold. I sold my first cartoon in the New Yorker, um, and uh, well, to be honest with you, uh, it was the first one I sold. They didn't print, and I was the first one I sold. They didn't print right away. They. they, they I sold another one that had to do with parking meters, uh, and I had uh, had to draw a dog attached to a parking meter, and. Um, it's hard to describe cartoons sometimes <laughs> you need, need to see them um, yeah but uh it was a it was a it was a, it had a dog in it and uh, he was tied to a parking meter you no know, when I drew this rough sketch and sent it to The New Yorker the dog was just attached to a stake in the ground which you know I wasn't really thinking and the editor Lee Loren, said uh, shouldn't you attach him to something in the city like a parking meter I said, oh, oh sure yeah so i I you know, I went home and uh, went back to my studio and, and uh, went out and started drawing parking meters to make sure I got it right. So that's that's that story. <laughs>
1: and, and how much uh, knocking on the door of the New Yorker did you have to do before you were able to get that first sale?
0: I think I was submitting as soon as I got to the city, about 1977. Um, and uh, somehow I learned the routine, which was submitting every week. Um, a batch of, we called them batches. We still call them batches of cartoons, of sketches, of ideas, uh, about eight of them every
1: week for two years.
0: And I finally sold one.
1: When you, obviously you've sold many more since then. Um, are, are you ever surprised why the ones that get selected and the ones that don't?
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't predict it, um, you know the the cartoons are selected by by the editors. They they, they make the decision as to what the, the senior editor, right, who is now David Remnick, and the cartoon editor decide on what gets bought. And uh, those are two individuals, of course, that have slightly different types of humor. Um, but you never really know what they're going to buy. So you just do you do you do all kinds of things to try to try to make a sale.
1: I know uh, every once in a while I've seen, I can't remember if it's like a yearly cartoon annual in the New Yorker, they'll print some cartoons that people just found inexplicable. Yeah. A- have you ever had that <laughs> honor?
0: <laughs> of course. I, you know, I just said that the first cartoon that I sold to them, and they ran second after the dog cartoon, was uh, kind of esoteric. And I, I was ha- thrilled that they bought it. Uh, it was a dream come true but i I knew already that people wouldn't understand it, and i wasn't trying to, i wasn't trying to be uh um you know uh, what's the word i wasn't trying to be uh uh effusive or, or not effusive uh, evasive but the um the idea was was a little hard to understand it had to do with art art theory which i i don't do that anymore <laughs> i try to do cartoons that relate that people can relate to.
1: And just give you a little uh, background on how I look at, at our conversation today as a, as a lapsed art historian. Oh. So I'm, I'm always looking for kind of uh, style and uh, influences and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. before we go further down that road, I'd like to turn it back to uh, my co-host here, Martin, and get a, get a little bit more background on your life and how you, how you got to where you mm-hmm. are today.
0: Okay.
2: Liza, as I I mentioned uh, before we came on air, I'm kind of a genealogical nerd and I always like uh, origin stories. Uh, I kind of come from a place that even though things may happen very early in life, we may not attach a lot of meaning to them, that they really kind of do inform us further down the line. Mm -hmm. And I know you grew up in in Washington DC. And from what I understand in reading some of the material, At the age of seven, your mother seems to have introduced you to Thurber,
1: who Mm -hmm. obviously
2: is a major New Yorker uh, artist, but also, you know, huge influence in the field of American humor. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, was that the point in time where you said, ah, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to become a cartoonist? Is it that early? I think you said it was seven years of age.
0: I don't think I was really thinking about career at that point. (laughs) 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 Why not? You know, that was a long time ago. Kids these days do think about career at age seven, I guess. Um, It was an aha moment, I think, because when I, my mother gave me the book of of Thurber's uh, drawings and said, you know, and she gave me some paper and a pencil. I'd already been drawing um, as a kid, other stuff. But uh, when I was handed this, these two things and three things, I started tracing his cartoons because they're very, uh, they're very accessible. They're very almost childlike his cart his drawings, not the, not the humor, but the drawings themselves. And I just started tracing these drawings and it made my mother laugh. And so that I was hooked from that moment on, I think that she was, she was so tickled by my drawing. Um, and uh, I just continued with my own efforts and, and they my own style, which, when people tell me it looks like Thurber, I'm so, so uh, pleased to hear that.
2: Yeah, that that's certainly when I kind of looked at, at your work and then compared to Thurber, it, it just pops right out at me.
0: Oh, thank but, you. Um, mm-hmm.
2: In terms of childhood, from what I understand, you were raised in a Quaker family. You mm-hmm. went to Quaker schools, to Sidwell.
1: Mm-hmm. You went to
2: college in Earlham out in Indiana, also you know, a Quaker school, how important is that as part of your background and how does that kind of influence some of your work?
0: Wow. I usually don't get asked that question. That's really interesting. Um, And I don't mind it. um, It's just not something people pick up on. Um, How does it influence my, my work? Well, uh, I'm I'm not a particularly religious person. And I was for a brief period when I was, uh, teenager but um i don't know if anybody knows about quakers they are very tend to be very socially conscious and they tend to do a lot of things to to help change the world for the better um and so that was instilled in me early on that you know not pressured but that was something that you're supposed to do something to, to, to help um and so when i was growing up in washington in the 70s 60s and 70s there was a lot of turmoil which actually seems um pale by comparison uh, now, but the turmoil was, was right right in my backyard and um, I think deeply worried me as a, as a child. When Martin Luther King was killed, it was a, a real shock to me. And uh, JFK, of course, but I was much younger and I, I didn't quite know the significance of that. And then there was Watergate and then there were civil rights marches and, um, and riots. And I, I just thought, well, I, I don't want to go, I, I'm not the kind of person that's going to go Uh, on a, on a march with signs, I just, I'm a quiet and I'm a shy person, or I was. Um, I, I was drawing already. So, and I was observing, um, political cartoons when I was young. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I can do with my, with my abilities is do something to help other people in some way, become a political cartoonist. So that's how I think that my Quaker upbringing influenced my, uh, drawing.
2: I find it interesting, of course, in, in the late 60s and early 70s, we have Richard Nixon in office, who is obviously known as a Quaker, one of two, <laughs> I think Herbert Hoover was the other no.
0: one. Yeah. Um,
2: although I don't think uh, Quakers were generally lining up to, uh, to lay claim to him. Uh,
0: no, no, they weren't. No, not at all. It was kind of like, uh, yeah. I mean, Nixon loomed large in my growing up, of course, because I was in Washington at the time, and uh, Herbert... Her block, the cartoonist that I was watching, uh, skewered him repeatedly. Um, I didn't, I don't think I was aware he was a Quaker. Not that that would have mattered, but uh, um, yeah.
2: And you mentioned this to me be- before that quite early on in your life, you lived in Italy, I believe, for a year. Mm-hmm. I think your father went on a sabbatical, from what I understand. That's right. And you weren't, from what I've read, too thrilled about the notion of going to live in Italy because you you had planned on trying out for the cheerleading team, <laughs> which was perfectly <apparently laughs> antithetical to your uh, how you like to present yourself. You, you are going to bite the bullet and do that, and the plan obviously was scuppered by this living in Italy. <laughs> yeah, but it I also a- sense hmm. that it was transformational for you
0: yeah no the cheerleading thing was it, i mean if you know Quaker schools cheerle- being a cheerleader in a Quaker school is probably a lot different than a large public <laughs> high school i mean it, it was it was uh sort of just something that we we went along with um and it was a social desire of mine to be part of the part of the uh in crowd of course this is uh when I was sixteen fifteen um but my parents wanted to take a year off and go. Live in Italy, which back then was not as common for an American family to do, Um, and I was really upset. (laughs) But when I got there, it was it was transformational. It was so uh, wonderful, and uh, I felt a lot. I felt uh, very independent. You know, we lived outside. We 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 were we we'd rented an apartment outside outside of Rome, and um, I would take the bus downtown at age sixteen and just walk around Rome by myself um, go to the flea markets and whatnot. And, uh, I felt, I felt quite free and open and, and, and adult. And I, and I think it influenced my drawings too. I didn't draw in the street then, but I did draw Italians. So when you're, when you're a cartoonist and you're, you're removed from your, your own country, like I was, I I think it, it gives you a good perspective on what's going on in your own country. And you also can, can, uh, can see other types of people and be educated about the world that way. And I was also influenced by um, other types of cartooning when I was in Europe, you know, the political, not, not, uh, not so much political, but I guess they were political uh, cartoons of, of, of uh, European cartoonists that often worked without words. And that was what I really loved to do. So.
1: Uh, just mentioning the Italian thing. Uh, my wife is from Italy and I've mm. gotten to travel over there a lot. And, you know, the, the art just sort of drips off the walls, you know, mm-hmm. even a, a small town's there's layers. My wife's yeah. town has uh, was founded by the Romans, has a medieval building in the mm-hmm. town square, has Renaissance, has Baroque. It's just kind of everywhere you turn. Yeah, it's got for- to seep into your pores.
0: I definitely. I, I forget to mention that because I, uh, I we were going to museums all the time. So I was not looking at cartoons, but I was looking at, you know, wonderful, fine art, historical art. And it had to influence me. I mean, I was, I was a big admirer, obsessed with uh, Leonardo da Vinci, particularly his drawings. And he, he did do caricatures too. So I would Mm. study those and like, wow, there's, you know, that's fantastic.
2: Speaking of which there's this nexus, obviously between art and cartooning, Mm. Uh, you know, some folks might art with a big A as in fine art, as opposed to cartooning. Um, And I know you have an exhibit or I'm not sure if it's ongoing at the Norman Rockwell museum. So where does one leave off and the other start?
0: (laughs) Do you have a couple of hours? Um, (laughs) uh, It's a complicated question. And, um, for some cartoonists, it's not. It's like they'll say, "I'm not an I'm not an artist. I'm a cartoonist." I, I don't. I I think it's more complicated than that. Um, for me, uh, yeah, yes, I do have an I do I did have an exhibit at the Norman Rockwell Museum. It was quite an honor. Um, a, a one one person show there, and um, it's still online. So you can go to the normanrockwellmuseum.org dot org and um nrm dot org and see see some of it still on view online and some video of of me talking about it. Um, but to go back to the question, um, and I wrote about actually back to Norman Norman Rockwell, I wrote about that experience. And also I, I, I drew in his studio. They allowed, they invited me to be in his studio and draw in there. And I wrote about that for the Washington post. So that's also something that talks about, uh, art and socially conscious art, which Rockwell, uh, did, and um, more so in, later in his life. Um, he sort of went back and forth in that world between art, illustration, cartooning. He was a mixture. And um, I've always thought of cartoons as a, as an art form because uh, I, I just feel like it comes, if, if it's not, if cartoons are not about just a joke, um, they can be an artistic worldview. Like some of the best cartoonists in the New Yorker they're not just creating jokes they're creating their view of the world you know and that's sort of what artists that's what fine artists do they they give you their impression of what either what's going on internally or what's go, what they're seeing and how they're responding to what they're seeing so in that way cartoonists are very much the same and um, when I was uh, I forget what year this was but when I was a young professional starting out uh, in New York they the, the Whitney had an exhibit of Saul Steinberg's work. And I was so excited by that because I thought, okay, we've arrived. You know, he's an example of, of, of a cartoonist. He's called a cartoonist, but he's also being exhibited as an artist in a, in a world-class art museum. So, um, yeah, I just think, uh, I think that's, that's, that's it in a nutshell for me. I, I probably could talk more, but that that's.
1: Yeah. There's an, awesome there. you yeah, know, from my, Art history days, I'm remembering a lot of uh, artists who, you know, primarily known as painters who crossed into art that looked a lot more like cartoons mm-hmm. and and often with a political satirical edge to them. Yes. Uh, I, I want to go back to another expedition you, you, you where you left your home territory. Uh, you know, I read that you, in college, you, you were a fine arts major. Mm-hmm. And then you had a chance to travel to New York Mm -hmm. on a a fellowship or a semester abroad. Mm -hmm. And you ended up actually at a building that's uh, half a block from me right now, the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. And that was why and and what what crazy influences that place must have had. Yeah. Um,
0: That program was great in college. That was a fine arts program where you could go live in New York and study with a A painter or an artist of your, uh, that was in the program, be their, be their, um, intern or an institution that was involved with the program. And the Natural History Museum, the American Museum of Natural History, I should say, is, um, is, was in that program. So, I could choose to be an intern there. And my other passion in life has always been, uh, wildlife and uh, natural history and, um, my father was a biologist, so I was sort of influenced by him. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to be a cartoonist, uh, maybe I could be uh, in the, in the sciences somehow in the arts. <clears throat> and um, cause I wasn't really that great a student, but I was, I was a good artist. And so I interned at the natural history museum, which eventually got me my job in New York when I finished college. Cause um, they, they, they gave me another um, sort of fellowship or something to, to work there. And then I got hired full time. So it was a great, a great combination of my uh, passion for animals and nature and my drawing, my love of drawing.
2: So you moved to, from what I understand, you moved to New York around 1977, and that sounds like it was a pivotal year in many ways. From what I've read, um, I wonder if you could talk mm-hmm. about your memories of that time, because obviously 1979, from what I understand, is your first acceptance of Mm -hmm. a cartoon at new yorker Mm -hmm. so how did that year unfold and the subsequent years and how do you keep body and soul together as somebody that tries is trying to break into the cartooning world uh, you know Mm -hmm. especially at the new yorker which is Mm -hmm. obviously a very demanding place Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that was quite a year uh i graduated in may from college and uh stayed in in I went to school in in Indiana which uh, I went there because they had a lot of off campus programs and I could go to uh to New York for off campus I went to the Soviet Union for off campus study and I went to uh uh Vermont but um that's why I went to that college for many reasons and other reasons but um I graduated and I stayed in 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 uh, Indiana that summer and my boyfriend broke up with me. I'd been with him a couple of years. He was not there but he was elsewhere in in Washington actually. And then my parents got divorced. <laughs> uh what else happened? I, I finally decided to move to New York. A friend of mine said, "Are you coming to New York? I have a, I have an apartment, I have an extra room in my apartment for you." So I decided to go to New York. And I got to New York, I moved in and then my mother died uh that fall. So uh it was uh, one of those years you, you, you don't want to wish on anybody, um, but uh, I persevered and, and uh, continued submitting to the New Yorker, and uh, it, in two years, I sold one.
2: So. And how do you put bread on the table when, when the New Yorker isn't paying as much attention to mm. you as, as you like back then? How did you survive?
0: Cause, well, mm. I was working at the museum, okay. so I did have a, I did have a
1: job. Um, Mm -hmm. could could i ask you about the museum Uh, i ducking back a little bit when you were there were you uh working with the diorama painters or in your in your internship or
0: yeah well i knew them they were when i when i got there uh they were um some of the the masters were still there they were quite old um but they died while i was there there were two left i think and they both died but um Yeah. I, I, I didn't do that and I had no aspirations to be able to draw, to paint like that. I didn't know how to do that, but, uh, I did do some, I worked, I worked in what was called the, or is called the exhibition department. So, um, it's a group of artists. I I don't know if it still works the same way. It probably does. Uh, We're all artists in some way or another. And, um, we're given different tasks like, and some of them can be menial tasks too on a given a month, you, you know, hanging up, uh, uh, Hanging up uh, labels for for uh, an incoming exhibit, or I got to I got to paint a Tibetan balcony. I got to design it and paint it, which is still on view there. I got to um, create little figurines that were Genghis Khan's ancestors and paint those. <laughs> oh, they And they're, they're still they're still in the museum. Um, I painted a a plastic plaster cast of a large uh, frog called a Bufo marinus. I had to paint it to look like a real thing. So it was actually a, a, quite a fun job and interesting and diverse, and the people, there
1: were great. Martin's going to j- wants to jump in, but I'm not going to let him for a minute. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, I, I just want to follow this museum. Right? Just just to kind of, you know, ca- occasionally I go off the track and, and get a little personal, but I've probably been in the Museum of Natural History more building than more in that building than any other building in my life. Oh, really? Mm. Outside of maybe a place I just worked, uh, because my daughter grew up at the Museum of Natural History. Oh, that was great. that was the default play date. Rain rainy day. Even beautiful day. It was always to the museum and natural history from the time she was the smallest thing, uh, and she she did have an internship there during high school in mm. this, this uh, science research mentoring program. So uh, I've I've always intrigued to hear this. Now I have to go down to the museum and find your work still on exhibit.
0: Yeah, uh, the, the balconies in the Asian hall and the okay. Uh, I don't. I guess so. so are the uh, Genghis Khan's ancestors too? So
1: all right, I all right. am going to look that up. Well,
0: maybe I'll come. Maybe I'll come and we'll go together. And I can oh, that'd and- be
1: fantastic! Yeah, it'd it's be a, I, It's open, so mm-hmm. let's do that. Great, good idea. All right, you're on. <laughs> so can I
2: ask about the nature of your cartooning? From what I understand, you you describe yourself as a editorial cartoonist, as opposed to there, there seem to be all sorts of flavors. I think everything from you know, the funny comics, et cetera. Um, my view of you is kind of like single panel cartoonist in the New York Times with just this kind of monochrome, but that's not a, entirely a fair description, is it?
0: Uh, no, I think it's all these different types of cartooning often cross cross pollinate each other. Um as I said, I wanted to be a political cartoonist at an early age. And I, um, at, at that early age, my, in my teens, I would look at the political cartoonists that I, I was aware of. And I thought, well, I, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. This, that I don't have strong enough opinions to, to be able to, to do that. Um, which I now know is not true. It's probably a gendered thinking on my part. But, um, I looked at, uh, I looked at the New Yorker. In t- in, when I was in my teens and I saw political cartoons in there, they were a little bit, uh, quieter political cartoons in the New Yorker. So I looked at the New Yorker. I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe that's where I, I can set my sight. So that's where that started. And my, I, so I was anxious to get a political cartoon sold when I was, began selling to the New Yorker. And in 1984, I sold my first political cartoon to them, which had to do with Fritz, with Walter Mondale and <laughs> the election that year. So ever since then I would sell every now and then I'd sell a political cartoon to the New Yorker. There's, there's a handful of them uh, more than a handful over the years. But I also think that the uh, political uh, can or editorial can cross over into real life as well. I mean, into daily life. Um, it An editorial cartoon doesn't have to just be about politics or about leaders or about wars or about uh, global issues. It can be about daily life, particularly because I, I'm a feminist Uh, every day for a woman is a political day, you know? Um, And so drawing about daily life is a, can be a political uh, cartoon. And, um, and I do, I do more different types of editorial cartoons too, not just for the New Yorker, but I publish on medium. I do a lot of uh, uh, more um, color, uh, bigger picture type, drawings about politics and global issues and feminist issues. So readers can go there and see those.
2: I just saw one of your latest posts on medium where you were featuring uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, and it, it kind of goes to a discussion of the political turmoil that I, I hope we've recently emerged from. Um, but I want to just, I think it, it, it's no surprise that your politics are liberal. I think that's pretty well understood mm-hmm. that you, you certainly have not been a fan of, uh, President Trump. But we live, the turmoil that we have seen in, in January, especially with, you know, the Capitol Hill stuff, all of a sudden, uh, drawing about that stuff becomes, uh, a little bit more challenging, a little bit more disturbing? Um, does it rise to a Charlie Hebdo type consideration or worry?
0: Mm, great question. Well, I am going through sort of a, a um, transition right now, as I think most of editorial cartoonists are. Having Trump leave the White House, uh, you start to, adjust to the new reality and what to draw about. Uh, um, because he was so front and center f- in so many ways all the time that there was uh, no shortage of material. And, th- and that said, I, I don't really like to to constantly ridicule one person. I don't think it gets us anywhere. But um, uh, he was a presence and he was a constant presence. And he angered me so much that, uh, many of my drawings came from a place of anger, which is not normal for me. Um, and so now I don't know where my cartoons are coming from. I haven't quite figured that out yet. I, I like to do bigger picture things. I don't, uh, but, um, so drawing about, drawing about, uh, the capital siege, um, I did never, never really rose to a political or editorial cartoon per se. I would draw about it. And readers can see them, the drawings on on that medium column. But um, it's just it's just becoming different for me, and I'm I'm sort of doing some soul searching, like what am I going to do going forward.
1: Well, one thing that's different for you over the last few years is that much more you know, putting it. I know you haven't abandoned the uh, pens and the pencils, but you've yeah. added the iPad mm-hmm. uh, and that more quick, immediate. Uh, Drawing around events, uh, tell us about that. How has that uh, opened mm-hmm. up new possibilities for you? Is it fun? Is mm-hmm. it? Uh, does it have its own challenges?
0: Oh, it's great fun. It's 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 uh, so. It, about five years ago, I was given an iPad and I started drawing uh, on this wonderful simple program called Paper and um, drawing what I was seeing on the television, just doodling, fooling around. And it was we were watching the State of the Union, which I love to watch because it's. Just a, just a tradition and uh, it's also can be very boring so I was drawing the people that I was seeing just quick I'm not a caricaturist but I would do k- quick impressions of them with this uh, with this new app and very quick bright colored uh, drawings and put them on Twitter immediately uh, in real time and it became something that people picked up on I think Twitter uh, saw me doing this there were, at the time there were not as many visuals there were, there were photographs on Twitter but It was something new and uh, I got a lot of followers doing that. So I did it for myself for a year or so and then started uh, uh, getting hired to do it. And uh, I got myself to the uh, Academy Awards, (laughs) the red carpet. I I found a way to get there and and now I go there every year to live draw the the red carpet and um, what I'm seeing going on. And It's not just the celebrities, not the big names necessarily, but what's going on behind the scenes, Uh, the people painting the... The, the baseboard uh, that's holding the Oscar statue, you know, or the the photographers or whatever, um, and giving people in real time a a feeling of being there with me. And um, I tweet them out, I put them on Instagram, and then I create a, a, a blog post about them afterwards. And I've done that for CBS. In fact, CBS hired me to uh, do this on a regular basis. Um, back during the 2016 election, I was sent to the DNC, um with for them and then i went to the inauguration for them and um i did some work for cnn and, and the new yorker also uh so uh it's it's a real joy because i love traveling i love getting out i love interacting with people and drawing what i'm seeing um although with your ipad and your sketching people don't really know what you're doing you know if i had a sketch pad and charcoal they'd like oh they'd want to come over and see what you're doing but many times um you can be anonymous which i also like to be sort of me- sort of uh, hide in the, in the background. Um, and, uh, so I still do that. And when the pandemic's over, I'll hopefully do it more again. Um, I went to the white house for CBS. That was fascinating. I got to be uh, at a press conference and I've done the women's marches. So it's great. Now during the pandemic, uh, I couldn't do that. So I started drawing in my studio, um, on paper with a with a camera over my hand my iphone over my hand and as i drew i would talk to the audience just just stream of consciousness about what's going on with the pandemic with the uh, black lives matter protests and then with the election and it became and i still do it every week uh three times uh it's been five times a week but now i'm going to cut back to three where it's um uh it's a dialogue with my audience and um they're talking to me. I'm talking to them. We're sharing what's going on. And sometimes the cartoon will become a, a, a real editorial cartoon. Uh, but oftentimes it's just drawing what I'm sensing and, and observing and feeling from the news. So that's been a real joy.
1: Uh, a joy for the audience to a great break in the action. I, I, I've tapped in on so, several of them. And that's actually yeah. where we kind of connected over the yeah. getting you on Irish stew here. So um, yeah, thank you uh really really great stuff um but you know it is called irish stew so we don't want to go too far down the path without touching base on what about you is irish and what's what jumps out and what do you mm-hmm. know about your irish background and
0: well, i have a very irish name as you know so mm. <laughs> i but i growing up i didn't think about that at all it didn't occur to me that i was irish or had irish ancestors i, I mean i think it did yes i did know but, um, it wasn't until I got to uh new york to to uh work at the natural History Museum that uh one of the older men at the museum we were all out at lunch a bunch of us, and he made a point of my irish name and and ancestry and it was it was at that point I realized, oh yeah, I really am irish uh <laughs> it was something about New York that made me irish i think um uh so but I didn't do anything about it I just sort of accepted that that uh, wonderful mantle and um I have done research over the years uh, into my family background and I think my some of my family already had this information so I got it from them was that my my ancestors came over immigrated to this country right before 1800 so it was quite a while ago and I think they a, a man named Peter and his father came over here together he was young Peter was young like a young man, 14 or 15. And, um, they were in the seafaring business, I believe. And they came to New York and very soon thereafter, uh, his father died. So Peter was alone, but he ended up l- making his life in New York and, uh, which I love. So he had that New York connection. Um, and, uh, he was in the, in the, in some sort of, uh, uh, seafaring business, um, in, in the city. Uh, and then, just to, to which might be of interest to your listeners, uh, my my great great grandfather no sorry great 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 grandfather Donnelly three three or four greats, I forget was mayor of, of Trenton. So Mayor Donnelly was uh, mayor of Trenton, and then my my his son also became mayor. And he Mayor Donnelly um, Fred Donnelly was mayor for twenty plus years, and he was the man who helped. Be, bring the uh waterways to trenton be, to help make trenton a a real water uh uh waterfront force uh, in commerce and he helped uh build that bridge that says trenton makes the world takes so that's um part of my donnelly heritage there and i'm very proud of that so um yeah it's it's, it's uh, and i think uh, you know knowing now what i do about irish folks is there's so many poets and writers uh, and I feel um, I like to think there's a connection there with me because I feel as cartooning is a form of poetry I think um, and writing so uh, and a passion for politics too right am I right Um, absolutely so uh, I've been to Ireland twice now in recent years was invited to speak at a and live draw a uh, conference in Dublin called at the time it was called Inspire Fest. And it's uh, it's since changed its name to, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember. Just recently changed their name, but what a wonderful conference! Um, I spoke there twice about live drawing, and um, really felt a great connection to the country and the people. What a what a wonderful place! I can't wait to go back.
2: So, from what I recall, or uh, I think we were talking before we, we came online that. Your original immigrant ancestor in your Donnelly line comes from Monaghan. That's right. Um, did you actually make it up there? Um,
0: I have not yet. Uh, the first time I went, Dub was just Dublin, and then the second time I went, I got—I uh, I worked out a deal with a tourist agency, and I drew some dro- drawings for them, and they took me around different parts of, of uh, Southwest Ireland, and I drew do sites and people. And uh, got to see some places, but I have not been to my my ancestor's uh, county, so I had to do that. To- yeah,
2: so Monaghan um, is probably w- one of the things it's quite famous for is is being the home of the poet Patrick Kavanagh. Oh, uh, Patrick Kavanagh had a love hate relationship with Monaghan, uh, probably encapsulated best in one of his poems called "Stony Gray Soil of Monaghan." Uh, <laughs> where he kind of refers to the place of stealing his youth. And it was clearly a difficult place to live. And it's it's probably not not a surprise that your ancestor, you know, decided to go in search of better things.
0: Why was Uh, it difficult?
2: The nature of the land in in that part of the world, it's famous for a geographical feature called drumlins, uh, which are actually glacial deposits formed in these kind of hillock-type land.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: let's say it's the opposite to the Nebraska experience, which is broad, flat, and and easy to plow. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monaghan would be very much different than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you get a chance, uh, you know, to, I don't know if you're familiar with Kavanaugh, but his stuff is actually... I'm really not.
0: All right, I will I find it. Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you yeah, know, I also not- noticed in your background that you have a Civil War general. I think that was the first... Uh, ancestor that um, served as mayor of Trenton, which I think is interesting. We actually had um, a, um, a gentleman on the show before called Damien Shields, who was an expert actually in the Irish in the civil war. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'm looking forward to kind of pointing yeah. him back at your ancestor. Obviously this is a man that, you know, was had some serious involvement in the civil war mm-hmm. your roots are incredibly deep. Uh, in America, you know, like most of the Irish that came over here, were 1840 or afterwards. So it's interesting to talk mm-hmm. to somebody whose family roots, you know, stretch back into the 1700s. Yeah,
0: yeah, and my Quaker roots from from England are also very deep and go far back. Mm-hmm. Um, that name was Gothrop, which you mm-hmm. never hear that name anymore. But um, yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I, I, the Irish were so welcoming. And the, uh, oh, humor. How could I forget humor? The <laughs> famous Irish sense of humor. I feel, um, you know, the connection there. Uh, but they, you know, when I got over there, finally, it took me a long time to get there. I'm not sure why, but, um, uh, they, they're so welcoming. And even though most Americans, when they go over there have, feel that they have ancestors from Ireland. So, um, th- yet n- nonetheless, I felt welcomed.
2: Yeah, we, uh, we're we still working on that. You know, the old, uh, the traditional <laughs> Irish greeting, uh, Cade Meal of Foil to 100,000 welcomes, apparently 1,000 isn't sufficient. Uh, <laughs> and and so, uh, you know, obviously there, there's an enormous number of Americans that claim Irish ancestry, I think by mm-hmm. last count, something around 30, 30 million. It's mm-hmm. pretty yeah. fascinating for an island that only has 6 million people on it. Uh, so the Irish immigrants, when they came to America, certainly did increase and multiply. Mm-hmm. But I want to shift back to this kind of you seem to have an, an internationalist perspective in your work. Um, I'm thinking of the controversy in the cartooning world of 2005 at the publication uh, in Denmark of a, a series of cartoons on the Prophet Muhammad. And I think uh, much later than that, I think in 2013, you also kind of wrote uh, an op-ed in the New York Times, uh, you know, subsequent to what happened with, you know, the Charlie Hebdo massacre in in Paris. And I'm kind of, there is this issue, I, I think, in the cartooning world of obviously freedom of speech, but balancing with cultural sensitivity Um, i'm wondering what your take is on those issues How, how are those best handled
0: yeah it's a uh it's it's an ongoing conversation among cartoonists um back in 2005 after the danish cartoon controversy uh which has its own wikipedia page if people are not familiar with it you can just google it um we first learned how uh controversial cartoons can be uh, because I think in part, because the internet was just uh, becoming hugely global. And um, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I should explain the, the controversy, but it, it, um, it, it showed us that, uh, that uh, cartoons um, are not always understood across the board by people There's different interpretations of cartoons. Uh, uh, and they also can, cartoons can be used by, uh, forces that are not, uh, uh, out for a good, <laughs> for a good reason. So, um, I became part of a group that, that year called Cartooning for Peace, which is an organization started by, uh, the French cartoonist Jean Plantu for Le Monde and, um, Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General of the UN at the time. And, um, Kofi Annan loved cartoons. He was a big fan of cartoons, and he understood the power of cartoons. And this was right after the controversy, so he wanted to have a week long um, uh, dialogue about uh, something called. They titled it "Unlearning Intolerance." And one one of the days of that uh, that uh, seminar, that weekly seminar, weekly long seminar, was uh, cartoonists. He had, he, and they invited uh, a bunch of cartoonists. I think there were twelve or thirteen of us from around the globe. To come talk about our craft and that was really a beginning of a of an organization called the uh, cartoon for peace which is not really drawing peaceful cartoons as a name might imply it's more like uh, talking about cartoons and using cartoons to talk you know to, to have a dialogue o- a among people that might think differently act differently live differently uh, worship differently so um, and the organization is still ongoing um, we have exhibits I curated exhibit for the cartooning for peace in New York a couple of years ago, celebrating our 10th anniversary. Um, and there, there's exhibits all over the world as well. And, um, and then to jump forward to, uh, 2015 when the Charlie Hebdo murders happened, that also became a big, uh, um, what's a good word for it. I don't know. Um, moment to talk about freedom of speech and, uh, what's the responsibility of cartoonists to, uh, to, to, in, in light of freedom of speech, but also in light of, of, uh, cultural sensitivities and people not understanding or people uh, offending people. So, uh, um, I wrote that op-ed for the New York Times, um, about the issue and how it, at, at the time it divided cartoonists in two camps. And, um, uh, I think those camps still exist, uh, in that, um, we all believe in freedom of expression, freedom of speech. That's a given. Uh, but there are some cartoonists that feel uh, that's just, that's the end of the story. Just that's it. But there's some of us who believe that, okay, we have freedom of speech, but you have to exercise some caution, even though you never really know how your cartoon is going to be received, but you have to give it some thought that just because you have the ability to say something or draw something doesn't mean you should do it. You can figure out other ways to express freedom of speech. Um, you don't have to, uh, Possibly, potentially, um, uh, insult somebody with your cartoon, and that I have to—I have to sort of say that I—not sort of—I have to say that I don't hold any cartoonists uh, um, at fault for for deaths, but we do have to do have to think about it carefully
1: well you're you're illustrating the you know the power the power mm-hmm. of this this form of expression somewhere I picked up a quote of yours sometimes it just needs to be said in a cartoon mm-hmm. you know that there's ideas to get across that uh, kind of mm-hmm. go beyond words and then hit maybe hit hit the individual at a different level mm-hmm. uh, We'll wrap up with just one kind of look at cartooning in general right now, Liza, is that, you know, are we in the best of times or worst of times? You know, print is declining. Newspapers, the, the lifeblood of comic strips uh, are declining. They're still online, but I, I really don't know the the business model there for comics and cartoons online. Um, Yet there's new things opening up and you're working off your iPad. Is it the best of times or worst of times?
0: Mm. I wouldn't want to be starting as a cartoonist right now. <laughs> um, Cause I, I feel fortunate that I have a, um, a career behind me that, that sort of informs what I do now. Um it's it's exci- it's an exciting time but it's also a, a difficult time as you said the model for pay is is not good with 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 online journalism um it's much less than print um, that's and and so many of us uh have to keep our names out there using social media and, and uh keep it's almost like we're our, we're our own media outlets <laughs> trying to keep things going keep employed and so we, I've always had to do a lot of different things. I can't make a living just drawing for the New Yorker. I, there's nobody that really can do that. So you do a lot of different things public speaking, teaching, illustration. Um, so, and I think that's still true. And there's still a need for cartoons. There's people love cartoons. Um, it's just you have to figure out how to piece it together with different, different, uh, outlets, different medium, different usages. Um, so. You know, I don't know what to tell people when they ask me. You know, what, what was your advice to young people? I usually mm-hmm. say go into animation because people like things that move. <laughs> yeah. People, people like things that move, and that's always there's always going to be employment for um, animation. I think.
1: Well, uh, Liza, we've we've uh, kept you going here for quite a bit. Terrific conversation, lo- lots oh, of fun, you. and and lots of more. Uh, things we can look into, and you know, truthfully, well, Martin and I we prep for these calls, we have a bunch of questions. Yeah, you do. This this may be the record for the fewest questions we actually covered because oh, really? we, we covered so many, you know, we covered stuff in depth. So that means okay. we'll get you back for another episode. down well,
0: Oh, please, road. I want to hear, I want to hear about Ireland from you both, I want to hear more f- um, about about ireland
1: well just briefly from my end I, you know i'm an irish american uh, my grandparents came from ireland but i've been back maybe six or seven times and i've gotten very involved with this through the irish business organization mm-hmm. with a lot of irish initiatives so i've been i've been back i've been to belfast a couple of times i've gone to a couple of business conferences over mm-hmm. there so in a way i'm sort of a born-again irishman you know i i it, it, like you it was uh, it was yeah. in the it was in the background for me uh, to a certain extent, and then it really kicked into gear about a dozen years ago in New York. You know, uh, and I think you know Martin might his his reaction might be similar that a lot of people say they didn't really feel they were Irish, you know, Irish people until they leave Ireland, then they realize they're Irish. Is
2: something <laughs> some, some truth there, Martin? Yeah, I'm kind of mindful, uh, and it was interesting hearing you talk uh, about your trip to Italy as a teenager, where you kind of said you gained a greater appreciation for your home country by virtue of being outside looking in. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the great exemplar of Irish literature, at least the novel in the 20th century, is James Joyce, who Mm -hmm. lived most of his life outside of Ireland. We're mm-hmm. constantly writing about mm-hmm. Ireland because mm-hmm. you need that distance in order to see exactly. more clearly.
0: Yeah, I agree. And to see how people look at you, you know, see how people look at the country that where you were born is so uh, instructive.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, what we like to do when we wrap up uh, on uh, Irish Stew, uh, and obviously what a big thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks Excellent. so much. The list of the questions that we have were, we're were so incredibly long by virtue of just such an interesting body of work. Oh, thank um, you. It's fascinating. And, uh, but we always like to uh, to offer our guests the opportunity to do a shameless plug, which we will also include in our show notes, along with your lovely article in the New Yorker as to how you became a New Yorker cartoonist, which I thought was really interesting. I love that piece.
0: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a real fun piece to write. um on the fortieth anniversary of my first sale, uh, well, you you prepped me for this question, so I'm ready to tell you that um, two things. That uh, uh, please join me on my live draws, everybody. Uh, would love to. People would join. Just hop on um, Instagram uh, during the week when I do it. It's really uh, enjoyable. There's a lot of Irish people that have, uh, that are on that uh, on that broadcast that have joined me. Um, really fun. Yeah i have a little irish following i love it <laughs> um and then secondly my um I'm, I'm working on an updated version of my book funny ladies and it's it's going to be called very funny ladies and it's it's going to be published in the fall and i it's it's uh, a history of the women cartoonists of the magazine of the new yorker uh of of which they were a lot over the course of almost 100 years and uh, there were were women drawing cartoons in the first issue in 1925 which i was really happy to to discover so it's a history of the women cartoonists, some bios of them, some little pro, uh, profiles of them, and and cartoons. And uh, there's so many more women drawing cartoons for the magazine now than ever before. It's just really very exciting. And I've been interviewing them uh, all all this month, and it's going to be in the new new edition. So I look forward to that being published, and um, hope your readers can pick up a copy. So,
1: and wh- when sh- when should we look forward to
0: that? Uh, I don't exactly know the date. I'll find out and get you the information, but it's the fall of twenty. Oh, great! The
1: fall, great. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about it now, and we'll talk about Thank it again you. in the fall. Great, Liza. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun.
1: You know, Martin, when we uh, introduced Liza, we talked about bearing witness, and that really came out in the conversation. You know, she's there working, primarily known for her work in The New Yorker, observing the follies and foibles of all of us, and New Yorkers in particular. And then there was that new sense of bearing witness uh, you know, on the iPad, where she's doing things very immediately, posting them right away, and getting access to events ranging from the Oscars to the to State of the Union. Uh, And then you took an interesting angle with her in the Bearing Witness idea in uh, bringing out her Quaker background with its emphasis on Bearing Witness.
2: Yeah. Well, clearly, if you're going to be a successful cartoonist, you have to be an observer of all the peculiarities and foibles, if you will, of New Yorkers. But, you know, the one thing that struck me about Liza was her absolute perseverance She comes to New York in 1977 having, as Queen Elizabeth II might say, an anus terribus and sticks it out and sticks it out for two years submitting cartoons to the New Yorker. And it takes her two years to get her first cartoon accepted. And that's not like submitting cartoons once a year. She's doing it weekly. And so she sticks it out in the best and most stubborn of Irish traditions, I think.
1: You know, also, as her career went along, she reminds me of something that came out with of the uh, interview with Allison McKenna, the actor, producer, voiceover artist, that idea of being a culture maker and of having your hands into a lot of different things to keep, you know, to advance a career on a lot of different fronts. Lisa does speaking, and she does blogging, and she has Instagram, a live drawing. So I was impressed with that uh, kind of a business plan of, of being involved with a lot of different things in the culture and art space.
2: Yeah, and it was interesting when I asked her about kind of difference between cartooning and art. And the more I think about it, the more I realize she is a Renaissance woman. Yeah. Words, she, she's very flexible. She kind of takes to new technologies. Mm willing to think out of the box all the time, and there's a reason why she's had such a successful career over the last 40 years.
1: Yeah, it was really a privilege to share the stories with her like that, and to kind of wrap it up, let's remember that she's on the Irish Stew because of that Donnelly name, and she brought out some of her connections, and I thought probably the most interesting one was uh, there was something about New York that made her irish when she got to new york it's when she realized what her irish heritage was really all about and also she related back to ireland uh with its love of poetry seeing cartooning as a form of poetry i think after our discussion with her i'll go along with that that sounds right to me
2: hey folks thanks for listening If you like what we're doing, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice.
1: And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and aren't sure of how to post a review, we explain it all in our blog at irishstewpodcast.com.
2: Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty with Donald Bowens on drums, Kahlo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com.